HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Dyed Green on HRN. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Our guest on today's show is Fintan Keenan. Fintan is originally from County Monaghan, but now lives in Denmark, where he is an organic grain grower and miller. How did you first hear about Fintan? Um, I don't really remember. I Tell us about the dark underworld of bread bakers and grain millers. Dark underworld? Is there like a dark web? Is there like a dark web for people like you, how you find each other? Um, I'm trying to think of how... It was probably like on Twitter, you know, you get, you, you follow one person on Twitter and you see other people on bread Twitter, Twitter and bread Twitter and Irish food Twitter and sustainability Twitter. And boring. Um, now you're boring me. It's yeah. You're welcome to the, welcome to the board club. Am I right? It's just like this kind of, it's this ongoing theme. It's very easy to despair in these times. And yet there are people that are doing really amazing work and who are committed to protect to- our food system. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, like to preserve biodiversity, the global food system, um, healthy eating, sustainable communities, all everything like that. So he was he he was a great person to talk to for about all those topics, because that's really what he's trying to do with his mill. Um, And, uh, you know, we get into that big time. Incidentally, the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins was speaking at a conference this past weekend where he said some really cool things about um, food costs and about the food system in Ireland. And this is a direct quote, quote, which I think, you know, is important to this conversation and a lot of the conversations we've been having on Dyed Green. He said, we should be willing to walk past these artificially priced products and support the people who are producing our food in the most sustainable conditions. Wow. How 
incredible from the president yeah. of a country. Can you yeah, imagine that. if we had that kind of support here? Totally. Um, this is our our sort of second flour, bread, mill, grain episode in what was that was last week, right? Yeah, Karen was last week. But you also did talk a lot about bread with or we talked a lot about bread with Monken when he was on. So Look, it's, it's a another whole thing. sort of. Yeah, it is. It's a whole thing. I loved talking to him and hearing about the idea of food security and food sovereignty and, and how he was kind of complicating that notion a little bit uh, against the possibility of it kind of turning into nationalism. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, we need to produce and grow everything that our, you know, our nation needs within its borders. And it's like, okay, cool. But what if someone is hungry somewhere else? Like we're all connected and it's, it's more complex than just saying like, yeah, we need to make all our own food and grow all our, all our own food because that really just automatically limits who you're caring for in your group. And um, he brought that up and I thought that was great. Well, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think that um, trying to buy local as much as possible is very important. But the fact of the matter is that you sh- really shouldn't be able to go into the grocery store and buy literally what what any kind of fruit or vegetable or meat product that exists on the entire planet because that really isn't sustainable but not every country is able to grow their own food and and feed themselves like i think iceland is probably a good example of that um i mean everywhere that so, people live is yeah, an example of that um at different times of year you know we use all kinds of technologies and and things to make sure that people have enough food to eat all the time. But not even technologies. I'm talking about Im- importing a lot of the food. Some countries, like if you if you live on an island that's basically a rock, you can't actually grow anything. You probably import most of your fruits and vegetables. Yeah. I guess I was thinking of transportation and and storage as like technologies, but yeah. Well, that's how – That's I mean, that's the only the only hope that we have in confronting – the climate crisis in a way that protects as many people and ecosystems as possible is if we share our knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our grain. And our grain. Um, all right, cool. Well, it was a great interview for people who love flour, people who love bread. If you are interested in biodiversity, food politics, uh, or global sustainability, This one's got something for you. So stick around for our interview with Fintan Keenan. Well, Fintan Keenan, thank you so much for coming on Dyed Green. We're really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's exciting. So we wanted to start off by having you share a little bit about your background, your story as a farmer, and where you grew up. And how did you end up milling grains in Denmark? 
Okay, so I, I grew up on a small farm in, in Monaghan, um, which is kind of halfway between Dublin and Belfast. Um, back then, it was pretty, uh, pretty rural. It was before the whole Celtic Tiger, before everything opened up and we were a long way from anything. Uh, the farm was owned by my mum. Um, and prior to that, it was owned by my grandmom, which is kind of unusual to have two generations of women farmers in rural Ireland. Um, small farm with, uh, it's a small farm with beef and dairy. Um, so I was very much involved with agriculture, you know, from day one, if you like. So I was always surrounded um, with farming after school weekends, summer holidays, it was everything to do with agriculture, but very little crops, ironically, in terms of grains. Um, there was a small bit of uh, barley and oats growing around uh, where, where I grew up. I didn't really have any contact with uh, grains until um, late 90s. I was in Australia. I worked on some um, wheat farms in the outback in northwest New South Wales. Um, that was just after leaving Ireland. I was 20 at the time in 1997. And um, going from rural farming in Ireland to the Great Plains of Northwest New South Wales was a bit of a shock uh, to see fields that were 110,000 hectares in them compared to two-acre gardens in Ireland. Um, but quite an eye-opening experience, but also eye-opening in terms of uh, climate change was really just starting to kick in at that time, 1997. They were having one of the worst droughts ever. And seeing the, the volume of fertilizer that they were applying to the fields and these huge irrigation channels, you know, that were in some instances 20 foot deep that were completely dried up, um, and, you know, as a young, just quite, you know, all these impressions just coming out of Ireland, I was like, this is not right. This is definitely not the way that we need to be moving in terms of agriculture. Um, and, you know, from watching what's happening, you know, all of that is changing very, very rapidly. The droughts are getting worse, you know, extreme weather um, changes are influencing that a lot. And then move forward many years later to when I arrived in Denmark, um, I, I spent my first three and a half years um, working as a head of technology in the Copenhagen International School. And when I knew that I was gonna be here for the long haul, I decided that I needed to get more immersed into the Danish world. And that's when I decided to go back farming in Denmark. Um, and I got in contact with a guy called uh, Pio Gruppe, who grows a lot of different heritage varieties of grain um, here in Denmark. Um, and I met up with him and I started the following week. That was um, it's 11 years ago, actually, um, since that happened. And that's really kind of where my whole journey with grains uh, and flour milling started um, properly. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, that's a little bit of a roundabout answer to your question. I, no, I that's do great. tend to waffle a little bit, so you can reel me back in whenever needed. Those are the best kind of answers for us. Um, so when you arrived in, in Denmark, you started to grow heritage grains. 
What was that like for you? Was that a new experience in terms of being familiarized with the wide variety of grains that were being grown there? Is that something that you had experience with before? What drew you to that? Kind of what drew me to that was, you know, I really like farming, but having been surrounded by animal farming, mostly in my younger days, that's not something that I was kind of drawn back into. So grains really suited me um, because I like um I like the kind of seasonal change with grains that you have, you know, you can kind of do a lot of indoor work in the wintertime with cleaning, sorting, organizing, getting ready for the spring season again. And then in the summertime, you're outside, you're really enjoying the watching the growth. And then the, if you like the thrill of harvesting uh, and reaping the bounty of, of what you've put in the ground in the summertime is amazing. But what really captivated me um, when I first started on the farm here in Denmark was the flavour of the grains when you bake with them. You know, when they were milled in, that is something that I'd never experienced before. That opened up my whole world into what was possible with grains because it was not just about, you know, ploughing, seeding, harvesting, cleaning, milling. It was something more. It was something beyond that. It was about getting this product that um, was just phenomenal in flavour that you don't experience from any of the flour that you buy in a supermarket or any of the bread that you buy in a standard bakery is just not the same. Um, so getting to the point of that and then realizing that all of this effort with selection, with growing out heritage varieties, about getting crops as disease resistant, as suitable for the climate, this is, this is something that's so unique and so rewarding when you begin to actually taste the flavors um, that you're reaping from your harvest is, uh, that's what makes it all worth it. And what contributes to that flavor? Because I know, I mean, we're going through a bit of a grain and flour renaissance right now uh, in many parts of the world. Um, and so people are moving away from this store-bought commodity flour uh, milled from, you know, commercial strains of wheat and towards heritage strains of wheat <clears throat> milled in more traditional ways. So to you, what part of that process contributes most to the flavor that you were talking about? That's a really interesting question. And it's a question that I've been um, exploring with one of my friends today, who's a, he's a 70 year old, formerly organic farmer. I'm not sure whether you can ever call an organic farmer a former farmer, but um he sold his farm, moved into Copenhagen, and he's still very involved with what I do. And we share experiences and I talk to him on a daily basis. And we were just talking about a variety of grain today called Dalarna, which is from the region of Dalarna in Sweden. And I've just, I've just got access to 20 tons of that grain that I'm going to mill. Um, I milled 50 kilos last week. Um, and... Of all the grains that I've tasted over the years, I have never tasted anything like this. And both of us were just going, okay, if we grow this out again, if I save some of the seed that I've taken that I'm planning on milling and grow it out again next year, what's the chances that we're going to get the same flavor again next year? And the reason why we brought up that question was the farmers that I have taken the grain from are biodynamic farmers and their brothers 
and they're both renowned for seriously good work and growing really, really good crops, especially for food production, for milling or for brewing or whatever it may be. But um, like I've tasted Dalina before, but this is this is exceptional. This is um, you know off the charts. So is it the biodynamic growth? Because when I moved here to Denmark first, um, we started a CSA scheme where we were bringing in products from different organic and biodynamic farms. And I remember a lot of hype at the time about the flavor difference in carrots, for example, from a biodynamic farm versus an organic farm. And now we're seeing the same thing in the grains that I've taken from a biodynamic farm as opposed to an organic farm. So it's a really interesting comparison. You know, it's got a lot to do, obviously, with soil conditions and the variety itself, the DNA that's in the grain um, on in terms of um, its own flavor that it produces. But that in combination with how it's grown, I believe, has a huge influence on what the grain is going to result in in terms of flavor. And that's what we're seeing, like, literally this week that... Uh, I've never experienced something. There's another grain that um, is really flavoursome. It's a, a purple wheat, like literally when you look at it, the grain is purple. And that is one of the strongest flavouring flavours of grain that I've tasted. But this Dalin is, is beyond that. And it's just what we would call a standard heritage grain in terms of, you know, um, that it's not unique like a blue wheat or a purple wheat. But... Um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether that answers your question or not, but I believe it's a lot to do with the soil conditions and how the soil is treated, um, as opposed to intensive tilled, intensively tilled organic soil that is stripped of all its nutrients. You know, when you start going down the route of regenerative agriculture, where you're trying to put more back into the soil than you're taking out of it, I think that has a huge um, influence on what the result is in terms of the crop that you're housing. And I think that's what we should be focusing on. And that's what these two brothers are focusing on, what I'm focusing on on my own farm. Yeah, let's talk more about regenerative agriculture. I think when people think of a wheat field, they imagine a very large monocropped field with a lot of fertilizer inputs, uh, very highly irrigated. How does uh, your version of regenerative agriculture differ from that? And how does it differ from what people think of when they think of organic food, for example, which is a very common label that's applied right now? Good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I agree with what your, your last bit of that was, that organic is a label. Definitely. And it is, you know, in there's a lot of processors um, out there that are using organic as a sales tool as opposed to focusing on quality and regenerative processes. Um, and organic traditionally, unfortunately, like this is something that's been seen a lot on social media, especially on Twitter um, lately, is the pinpointing, rightly so, in organics of heavy industrialized tillage methods you know, that is highly depleting on soil. You know, it's really, you know, we're talking about every single year that it's it's uh, that the ground is inverted with a plow. 
and then cultivated numerous times, sown, and then the crop is taken off it. Uh, and normally the straw is taken off it too because it's baled and then used for bedding on it. So the soil is being stripped year on year. Um, in traditional tillage, organic tillage methods here, you know, maybe if you're lucky every third year, it would go back into a cover crop of clover or um, alfalfa or something maybe for a year, if you're lucky two years, but that's still not good enough. If we want to practice true regenerative agriculture, um, which is something that I'm trying to do on the farm here in Denmark, we need to look at stopping inverting the soil, stop the use of the plow. You know, like as a, there's a famous quote that nobody has ever um, found a, uh, a better reason for using a plow, a better scientific reason for ever using a plow. It just doesn't exist. You know, we need to walk away from it. And uh, in organics, we can't go out and use glyphosate and spray the fields. So we have to find a solution to that. And that is working with cover crops that can be, I think it's more common in North America where you are to, you know, use crimping methods um, and you've got much harder winters than we have. Um, but using white clover, for example, as a cover crop that you can no-till into it. So you're regenerating the soil as opposed to inverting it. But these methods, you know, they're not... No, there's no silver bullet right now. Um, what I'm doing on the farm is, you know, it's trial and error. And we don't know what it's going to look like in five years' time. Is, is there going to come a point where we're going to actually have to go back out in the field again with a plough? Or can we get our crop rotations in order so that we can suppress weeds? But I think if we want to look at pure true regenerative agriculture, we have to have animals in the process. And that's one of the beauties with biodynamic farming. I'm not a biodynamic farmer. I haven't gone down that route yet, but I'm toying with the idea because having animals in the rotation is, that's key to it, you know? And the, the ultimate animal in, is there is the sheep. You know, having sheep to graze down it because they nip the bud on everything. And if you can, if you can eliminate your weeds without having heavy industrialized methods. Again, this comes back to energy and CO2 emissions, you know. It's all very well using cover crops, but if you're going to cross your cover crops three times a year with heavy machinery to keep it mulched down, you know, you're defeating the purpose of what is possible by using animals instead. But then again, that brings in a lot more time because you're bringing in animal husbandry, you know, so and you need to be there 24-7, seven days a week. You can't take a break. So it swings and roundabouts to be able to find a solution, but that is the ultimate solution. And right now, um, I'm quite fortunate. I've got contact with uh, an organic sheep farmer who wants to, my, my crops are harvested, that he comes and sets up temporary fences around the perimeter of my fields, takes the sheep up, grazes the fields. Once they're finished, then he'll take the sheep away. So he has total responsibility. That's a bit of a luxury setup. There's not everybody has access to that. Um, but that way we can see, you know, the hummus in our soil be built up year on year, as opposed to be depleted year on year. And that's the, that is the direction that we go, we need to be going in. And what we're doing then is because we have um 
we're retaining carbon in the soil. So it's actually acting as a carbon sink as opposed to a carbon drain because we're storing more carbon and we're not releasing it every year by plowing, which is benefiting everything. It's benefiting the atmosphere and it's also benefiting our plants. Um, I'm curious about... um you know, about the growing of heritage grains in Ireland. Um, There seems to be a growing interest in that. And we've seen more and more conversations related to that, especially since the war in Ukraine and people talking about um, the potential to not be able to import wheat in the future. I'm wondering um, if you know of anybody in Ireland that is um, doing a project similar to yours, or if that's something that your brother, who I understand is also a farmer, is working on. That's a really good question. And this is something that uh, both Torlok and I, Torlok is my brother, um, and he is now farming the farm that we grew up on. Um, And this is something that we started together in, I don't know, when was that? 2015, something like that. Um, Growing, looking at the potential for growing heritage varieties grain in Ireland. And at the time, there was nobody doing it. You know, this was, and everybody thought, you know, in the region, because especially in Monaghan, you know, Monaghan is renowned for as being bandit country. You know, it's along the border. It rains a lot. It gets, you know, huge amount of rain compared to the sunny southeast, which is traditional grain growing region in Ireland. Um, But our hypothesis was, if we can grow heritage varieties of grain, that are successful, that are disease resistant, that we can get a good yield of, that can mature, we can get them in the shed, we can dry them down, they have a good enough falling number and protein to be used for flour. And if we could do that in Monaghan, then that can be done anywhere throughout the country. So that was what we, and then obviously we had the access to the land because, you know, that's where my brother lives. So slowly we started off with, I think, two different varieties uh, of 20 kilos each and sold them out to see. It was, it was rye and oolins wheat, actually, that we started off with um, to see how they perform. Was it possible to do this, you know? Um, and then it slowly, you know, just the waterfall came and it just developed into this huge project that Torlock is doing right now um, where he's got multiple different varieties of scales from literally from 20 grams to acres of different varieties Um, and then everything in between and we have over the last what is that maybe seven years or something we've built up a bank of machinery and equipment to enable him to be able to do this with less man hours basically so we've got different sizes of grain cleaners we've got different sizes of research combine harvesters and then Tullock's got a large combine harvester for taking the larger um, acreage but all of this is slowly getting to the point of where we have many different varieties that we know function and work and our heritage varieties the disease resistant they can handle the climate the good quality for milling and baking um so that we can like this this was something that i was actually thinking ahead i was like if if this is my thinking way back if something does happen in the future where we're looking at food crisis because 1850 or 1845 is not that long ago since this famine in ireland 
you know, and that is that's in the back of everybody, every Irish person's mind, you know, that millions of people went hungry or had to emigrate out of the country. And there we were at the, at the same point again, where we're importing a huge percentage of our food, especially our grains. You know, they're coming from the UK, they're coming from Canada, they're coming from Kazakhstan, they're coming from Ukraine. And then, boom, a war. And all of a sudden, we're seeing a grain shortage globally. But we were ahead of the curve. We were, you know, this is something that we were thinking about. It was like, we need to roll up our sleeves and get this done. Because by the time it's needed, it's going to be too late for the government to come round or whoever to come round and just go, oh, well, we need to, you know, as we've seen this spring where they're asking, you know, non-tillage farmers to plough up the ground and grow grains, whether that's father grains, barley or oats or whatever it may be. Um, but this is something, this is thinking that should have happened six, ten years ago. But, you know, not everybody thinks out of the box. So we are at the point where we have these heritage varieties of grain and Torek is working with them and has got to the point where he has, um, you know, tens of acres of different heritage varieties where he's built his own or blended his own populations of grain, but then still kept the heritage lines of each individual variety clean so that if any one variety that we see is not as stable as we thought it was, that it's, you know, susceptible to a certain disease or susceptible to lodging, which is when the grain falls over if the store is too weak, um, that we can identify that and then take that out of circulation. So, um, it's a huge amount of work um, and all of this done of on our own back. You know, we, we haven't received any funding. We haven't received any promotions. We haven't received anything. This has all just happened from joint collaboration between me sourcing some of the grains here in Denmark, all the Scandinavian varieties, and then taking many, many different varieties out of gene banks all over the world. You know, I've got grains from the U.S. gene bank, from the Dutch gene bank, from the Polish gene bank, German, the Nordic gene bank, the English gene bank, you know, stuff that we could get um, from everywhere. And we've selected grains from traditional grains that were grown in Ireland to grains from regions in the world where we believe that they might be successful due to the amount of precipitation in those regions. Like, for example, Nepal, or we've even got grains from Chile in South America that were grown there, or from Galicia in Spain. So regions that, you know, they're kind of similar, they might be a little bit warmer, but in turn, <laughs> we focus on the rain. <laughs> you know, if they, can, if they can handle the rain um, in Ireland, then they'll probably be successful. I'm curious, I, we, you know, we read an article um, recently in the Irish Times that you were quoted in where you were talking um, about how Ireland is well-placed to be food secure, but we also understand that, you know, almost all of the, the land used for farming is for raising livestock and dairy and Ireland exports a lot. Um, and so I'm just wondering if, if you could maybe speak to that, that gap the statistics are, this is well known, that, you know, Ireland is one of its largest products for export is the beef and dairy market, you know. Um, so when people are talking about we're food secure, we can't live on beef and dairy alone. You know, if you want to have a balanced diet, you need 
other food sources in there, you know, and that obviously being vegetables and grains. So the majority of grains that are grown in Ireland are sent to as fodder to support the beef and dairy industry. You know, so that is indirectly, you know, if you're talking about being food secure, yes, the food secure to an extent, but only in a limited number, not if you want a balanced, healthy diet and a healthy population. That's not going to work, you know. And I think this is something that's becoming, I think beef and dairy farmers might disagree with me, um, but we need to eat less meat. That's just the re- that's the reality of the world that we're living in. You know, as we're approaching 10 billion people by 2050, we're not going to be able to sustain the amount of beef that's been consumed right now. We need to move to more protein-rich plant-based foods. And that's the reality. I'm not saying this because it's going to be good for the economy of growing organic beans or peas, which is true, it is. But it's the reality that we can't keep producing and consuming the amount of beef that we're already at. And that goes for dairy as well. You know, and that's, I'm not advocating, you know, shutting down dairy farms or shutting down beef farms. I think there's a role for all those, as I said earlier on, that, you know, animals in proper rotations are a gift when it comes to agriculture, but not if it's your primary focus of production. So I think we have to look at both sides of those things and we have to look at what's reasonable in terms of a food economy. If you really want to talk about being food secure, then you need to have a really well-balanced society, you know, and I'm, I think, you know, this is something that's also quite dangerous as well of just saying that you're an independent food self-sufficient supplier, because then in a way it kind of promotes nationalism and that's not a good thing either. You know, you don't want to be locking up your border saying, no, we have everything we need. We're not taking in anything. We're not sending anything out. That's not a good, you know, solution either. But I think there's a balance on what you can produce. And, you know, uh, if you look at Denmark, for example, you know, we also have, you know, sheep farms here, um, as do uh, many countries. But yet when we go into the supermarket, we're able to buy New Zealand lamb, you know, much cheaper than we can buy Danish lamb. And that goes also for Ireland, you know. Um, so I think the economy of or the economics of import and export need to be adjusted in order to be able to promote more locally grown and locally sourced products and produce. And I think there has to be some sort of an investment scheme where, you know, growing products all year round is more feasible and more realistic because, um, as we know in Ireland, you know, it's probably better suited for a longer growing season in Ireland because it's milder than Denmark. Um, so you have that slightly, but you have, you know, you have swings in the climate right now that you can't rely on that every single year. But um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, really. Yeah. No, that was good. That was yeah. helpful. I wanted to follow up and ask about um, the work you're doing. And obviously you have a vantage point where you can see what's happening in Denmark and also see a little bit of what's happening in Ireland. 
Do you see either country as more supportive of the efforts to build regenerative and local agricultural economies? And if so, what are some of the most helpful or most successful programs that you know the other country could emulate? There's two. I, I, I know of two kind of really good um, groups, both in, in Denmark and in Ireland. And in Ireland, for example, there's a group called Base Ireland, um, which is a group of, it's a paid membership, um, where there's both conventional and organic farmers in there. And a lot of it is focusing on regenerative agriculture. Um, a lot of no-till, a lot of sharing of knowledge, skills, experience. Um, and it's, in, it's incredible because it's community-led. You know, although you're paid membership, it is, it's, a, it's a completely community-led, organized, looking at trials, looking at what works, looking at how best to support um, the shift to a major regenerative agricultural society. Um, whereas in Denmark, you have... Uh, we have different regenerative framing, which is a, um, what's the word for that? Regenerative unions, if you like. Um, that are kind of trying to do similar setups, like organizing demonstrations of no-till equipment um, and see how they're done. But very little in the organic section. Very little. This is mostly in the conventional sector, where, again, chemical-based agriculture is key to be able to do the no-till. Whereas in Ireland, um, it is a little bit different because you have members of both. You have to, um, conventional and organic people in there sharing best practice and seeing what's possible. And that the same, the same, there's also Base UK, which is very, very similar. You know, it's kind of the same tracks that evolved out of there. And that is doing wonderful work. And there's some farmers in the UK doing, you know, significant um, strides, having significant strides in, in uh, regenerative no-till organic in um, cereals as well. So there are, there are pockets um, of this happening, but I think it has a long way to go because if you, if you want um, the Department for Agriculture or in Ireland, Chagas, for example, to get on board, they're always last at the table. You know, they're picking up the pieces and waving the flag and saying, oh, we're doing this while everybody else has actually done all the hard work. Uh, and I think that's that's the case in many countries where you have, you know, the Department for Agriculture or um, semi, semi-state private bodies coming along after everybody else going, oh, look what we're doing, when uh, somebody else has actually plowed all the ground in front of them. So do you think that's what's going to lead that change is just individual farmers deciding to do things differently? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that's definitely the, the, the route to success, you know, is um, community-based agriculture, you know, sharing of best practices and experience. I think that's the future. Um, you, know, no, you know, as the common old saying is, no man is an island or woman. Um, and for us to develop this here, we have to share best practices. And to do that, we need a lot of different people in different locations, trialing different things, and then sharing those experiences to see what's happening. And one of the greatest things that you see now happening is 
for example, a couple of weeks ago in the UK, there was the, uh, the UK Grain Lab. So it was a gathering of farmers, millers, bakers, growers, um, and again, just sharing best practice, sharing experience, sharing, you know, and then networking. And I think that's the solution that we need to be focusing on to get to a more regenerative society. Um, and building and bolstering these local food economies. That's the key. That's the solution. You know, having local grains, and by local, I mean regional, not just, and regional, I don't mean just, you know, an area in one county. I mean, like regional pockets, that's, you know, whether that's Northwest Ireland or Northeast Ireland or Southeast Ireland. But we can also look at Ireland as a region or Ireland and UK as a region. So they're kind of creating these local networks as opposed to taking grains from Manitoba, which is bonkers, you know, sailing shiploads of wheat across the Atlantic. Like, how is that sustainable? And especially now, more than ever, with energy prices, with fuel costs. Yeah, maybe if they were actually sailing them, but yeah. <laughs> I, I have, oh, don't get me started. I have some serious uh, long-term visions and dreams of, of, <laughs> of all of those things, but uh, that'd go down the rabbit hole. You know, we'd never get off this podcast. <laughs> Um, it's kind of what it's one of the things that kind of kicked off my whole uh vision for this was a couple of years ago, not a couple of years ago, it's probably 10 years ago. Um, I was in France and I came across the Canal du Midi, you know, that goes through Toulouse that connects the um the Bay of Biscay to the Mediterranean. And then I started reading up on the whole history of it, and then you know, went down the rabbit hole of the whole canal network in France and what it was used for and then also in England and then in Ireland you know you had all of these networks for use for transporting food regional food sources transported by water brought to the ocean whether that was the Mediterranean or the Atlantic in most countries and then it was sailed from one country to the next but you know the cost is just completely prohibitive right now but who knows in the future? Because with growing grains, you can have a wonderful harvest this year. And next year, you could lose your whole crop. And that can happen in Ireland in the space of one week to the next, for example. You know, your harvest is ready in the field and then you have a deluge. And that, you know, in Ireland, when it starts raining, it can rain for weeks before you get a chance to get into a field. And I've heard that happening like... Last year was particularly bad for a lot of farmers in Ireland. You know, people who had milling wheat in the fields, the wheat began to germinate on the ears of grain before they could get out of the fields. And by that stage, when it's brought in, dried down, it is animal feed. So what is the solution at that stage? And that's why when we start talking about a regional economy, it can't be Ireland isolated on its own, you know, putting up a borders and just going, okay, we grow everything we can because sometimes you know, you can't predict the future. You can't see what's going to happen around the corner. And that's why we need to have collaborative communities across water as well. Um, so that if something does happen, like what we're seeing in the Ukraine right now, then there's other solutions. But unfortunately, everybody has been betting the money on that grain coming out of the Ukraine before the war to feed, you know, half of North Africa and the Middle East. And where is that grain coming from now? You know, so we're going to see a huge escalation of food riots and hungry people. 
So we need to we need to figure out a new system, a new way of trading, and a new way of creating local food economies with primarily with grains, because that is the staple, you know, of many people's diets globally. I'm ranting. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's good. It's, I'm pic- I'm picturing a a fleet of um of <clears throat> ships powered by you know renewable energy going back and forth. So am I uh, across the Atlantic. So it's a nice vision. It's a really good vision to have to be working towards. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tahona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best-tasting, highest-quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind-tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. So... I guess to follow up from that, Denmark in particular has seen a ton of interest in the realm of food tourism. It's become known as a a destination just for food on its own for international visitors. So I'm wondering how you see food tourism contributing to the work that you're doing in particular. And from our perspective, Ireland is also on the path to gaining international recognition as a food destination as well in a different way. But I'm wondering if you see a connection there and whether in particular, whether the tourism angle 
sort of drives a lot of your work. Maybe you're growing wheat to mill to sell to restaurants that are feeding tourists, or are you growing wheat to mill to sell flour to locals, or is it a, a good healthy mix? Um, I think I'll start off with answering uh, in relation to Ireland. You know, this is when we started growing grains in Monaghan. You know, I definitely had the the thought at the back of my mind that Ireland has at that point definitely and still has and is moving towards it of being, you know, the new Nordic of, of Western Europe um, in terms of food because it's got everything, you know, as we were talking about, you know, the beef, the dairy, you know, it's get, it's it, it, you can grow so much produce in Ireland. And then we have, we're an island, you know, we're surrounded by, the Atlantic and the Irish Sea, which is abundant in everything from the lobster pots of the West Coast and, you know, mussels, you know, where you, you name it, we have uh, an abundant food source um, and can very easily translate that into a complete foodies paradise in terms of tourism. But what I've been reading even in the last week is that we need to be careful with pricing. Because it seems like the the, the 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 food scene in Ireland is actually pricing itself out of competition because it's become so expensive as the destination to go and eat and lodging. And now with car rental, where it's the most expensive place in Europe to rent a car because of shortages, that um, something needs to... And it's again, it's, it's almost like the Celtic Tiger Mark too that somebody needs to put the brakes on somewhere and do a little bit of a reality check because it's got enormous, enormous potential. But if it's let uh, run amok, then it's not really going to kind of go in the direction where it should be going. And when it comes to supplying restaurants or bakeries, my ultimate goal is just to create the best possible product that I can make from the grains that I can grow and also the legumes and pulses for human consumption and, and get them out there to people, whether that's, you know, high-end artisan bakeries in Copenhagen or restaurants or even closer to where I am because I live just outside a town called Ringsdale, which is in the middle of the island of Schillen, which is uh, the island that Copenhagen is on. Um, and I hope that we, because we've got a little bit of a foodie vacuum down here where we are because it's all happening in Copenhagen. But once you go past Copenhagen, there's not very much happening. You know, out here, we're just, we're regional, but we don't have those high-end restaurants that you do have in Copenhagen. And that we don't have, we don't even have, a, you know, a really good bakery where we are here in town. So I'm hoping that with the knock-on effect of having a local mill set up and running here, the supplying, you know, local grains, local pulses, local um, uh even I'm growing lentils. Uh, I've got 1.4 hectares of lentils, um, which I hope to be able to process and have as a, another product to be sold out of the mill. But I'm hoping that that will bring a culture of food change in the town that we are in here. Because some mornings, you know, the weekend I wake up and I go, I, I really wish I could just drive into town and get a really nice cross on or something, you know, but it just doesn't exist. Um, but because I can see in Ireland with the whole transformation of food, 
and I'm going to refer to a bakery here that I, is a good friend owns Sarah Richardson owns a Seagull Bakery in Tremor in Waterford. And when when Seagull opened, you know, the town centres in Ireland were decimated after the financial crash. You know, a lot of people moving away into Dublin, small rural towns. You know, every other building boarded up. Um, and when Sarah opened Seagull, you know, it transformed the town and it's still transforming the town. And it brings life back to the, it's like the boulangerie in the villages in France, you know, it's the centre, it's the epicentre of food in the town. And I think when you bring that back, that's something because it's what most people go to as their morning food, you know, the loaf of bread or whatever it may be. And if you bring that back where you've got a high-end product that's still affordable for the majority of folks, um, that's, that's game-changing. And that's where you have a knock-on effect to many other things. And that's kind of where I'm hoping that my mill is going to go, that people slowly start reason, realizing that it's not just all about Copenhagen. You know, there are other areas too that um, we could be focusing on. And I think the pandemic, that you know, from COVID, from the lockdown, We've seen a huge reverse migration from Copenhagen back out into the smaller towns where you have families with, you know, kids and their pets and stuff where they wanted a little bit more space and not be locked up in 80 square meter apartments or whatever it may be. So there are people out there, you know, that have moved back to this area of the country and even further that want good food, that want access to those products, but they just don't exist right now. But it'll come, I hope. You know, I think that you hit on what I see to be some really interesting parallels in terms of food tourism in Ireland. Like, for example, you talked about the rising costs of lodging. And also, I mean, the rental car prices right now are just absolutely ridiculous. Um, you also have, you know, the hospitality industry really struggling to keep workers. So you have workers shortage in hotels. Um, maybe people aren't paying enough of a living wage to really be able to support the the people that kind of keep the hospitality industry alive. Of course, you need the, 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 the local people like leading the charge and you need these community-led businesses. You also need the government support. Um, and I see a parallel there between, you know, what is really needed to revolutionize the, the food system. It's not as simple as convincing industrial farmers to become organic or biodynamic. It's about making sure that, you know, those farmers have the supports that they need, that people are paid a living wage, that you actually tackle all of these different but related issues at the same time. I definitely agree that there needs to be um, some government support in order to, whether it's rein in or help with the social housing crisis that's happening in the country right now, or the cost of car rentals or you know, the cost of living generally, because a lot of people, you know, with the energy crisis right now, a lot of people don't have the disposable income to be able to go out and splash on, you know, super high end quality food, you know, and it's all very well that if you make that into a foodie destination, but you're pricing the locals out of it, which you see in Dublin right now, because of, you know, since breakfast, Brexit with the, uh, with the relocation of many of the tech companies, you know, you've got a lot of employees with huge salaries that can afford to rent properties, but they're pricing locals out of the out of the system. 
So there's kind of this knock-on effect to many different things that we're seeing. And it's, there's no, as I said earlier on, there's no silver bullet to it. So um, I think the food industry is just, it's on a, a knife edge right now, actually. Um, and something that you hit on there is the ability to retain workers in the service industry, you know, because they can't make a living wage. You know, relying on tips to be able to pay their bills is not sustainable. Um, and that's one contrast with Ireland compared to Denmark is everybody has a living wage. You know, the minimum wage is survivable here, you know. So I think there's two, there's two, opposing, there's two opposing ends there um, that need to be really have a, a, a huge reality check. Although the hospitality industry in Denmark, you have, there's something ironic that has happened since COVID. With the um, lockdown and then with the reopening and the stress in high-end restaurants, you know, in those kitchens, you have a lot of people that jumped away. So you have this huge network of people that were formerly chefs or in the service industry and have opened their own cafes or bakeries or coffee shops. And now you're seeing this mushrooming of micro bakeries in Copenhagen. It's incredible. They're just literally, they're just popping up everywhere. And that's as a result of the high stress that's in the service industry. So people are just going, okay, well, I see they're doing that down the road. They seem to be having fun. They're making good products. You know, they're accessing local produce. Um, why can't we do that? So you're just seeing this knock-on effect, which is really good for, well, for me, for supplying flour to micro bakeries, because I can make micro batches of flour, meaning that I can get fresh flour that's literally milled the day before and delivered to these micro bakeries in whatever quantities they want um, a day later. So they're getting something that has grown 40 kilometers away, has been milled the day before, and is in somebody's mouth, you know, 24 to 48 hours later. You know, that's really quite unique. And then you have this um, connection and collaboration all over the city because everybody seems to know each other because they've all worked in either the same restaurant or they have bounced around between different restaurants and bakeries. So it's a really, really small community of people between, um, you know, front of house, back of house, kitchen staff, chefs, bakers. So it's really, it, it's quite inspiring and really international. It's something, you know, we're something that we are always talking about and the idea that the working conditions in the restaurant industry have been really not great for quite a long time. So it's actually, it's, it's really nice to hear that there's something good coming out of the shakeups from the pandemic and all the, everything that's gone along with that in terms of strengthening regional food economies and increasing demand for locally milled, well-grown grains and all that. So I think that's actually really cool to hear. You know Ballymaloo in Ireland, you know, which is wonderful uh, and really inspiring for many people. But I would like to see something uh, on the scale of Blue Hill Stone Barns in Ireland, where you have this huge collaboration between the growers and the chefs, you know, so that as a chef, you're out, you know, you take a day a week 
out in the field, harvesting, growing, learning. And you see the whole cycles through all the seasons from start to finish. And you know what it is, how it's been grown, what it looks like, you know, what it takes to grow that, what it takes to harvest, what it takes to dry, to process. You know, and I think if we want to see a lot more food tourism in Ireland, you know, like in, in a healthy response, I think we need a lot more collaboration with that between the farmers, the chefs, the processors, you know, so that it's a really close-knit community and the education works both ways. So it's not just financial, you know, so that it's not just we're talking about a cent on an onion. We're talking about what it is, what take, what does it take to be able to grow a really healthy, nutritious, flavoursome carrot, you know, and that the learning comes from the kitchen back to the farmer. And then so you have this knowledge transfer. And I think that's something that's really, really um, positive and something that should be and will be developed in the future. If you speak to bakers and talk about grains and what it is to get a kilo of high-end, good quality grains that's grown in a regenerative style agricultural system. Nope, they don't know. You know, they don't know that you can't grow wheat on the same field every single year. They don't know why, you know, if you want to get that kilo of dalina that's really flavoursome, why it costs so much. It's because if we're lucky after five years, we'll be able to go back into that field and grow wheat on it again. But what happens in between? What's all the other crops that's coming, coming through that field that you're not going to get the same value as your kilo of wheat? So there's a lot of learning. There's a lot of information transfer that needs to be done to get it out there. Um, in Ireland, there's a, a group called Wheel Bread Ireland, which is a really good network of bakers, growers, millers, um, sharing of knowledge. But I still think that the knowledge transfer doesn't go far enough. You know, I think there's a huge amount of information missing in the loops in there. Yeah, I could say as someone who's coming from a chef background that we have no idea all the effort that goes into creating a really flavorful ingredient. I think it's obviously changing and that's not true across the board. But yeah, generally you go to the market and you're like, oh, why is this corn not as sweet as it was last week? And you just get annoyed and move on. You don't really actually think about it. So I think I love the idea of there being a little bit more education there. If you take uh, the grain growing in Ireland, you know, when we started off with all of our test plots and seeds out of gene banks, you know, we started off with a handful of seeds. I, I, I mean, like in some cases, maybe 20 seeds. The timeline from taking those 20 seeds to having one acre is five years. So if you take, let's say, if you're lucky enough to have five varieties out of 60 that work, you know, that's still five years. If you get one of those varieties every year, that's 10 years before you have five different varieties that's stable enough to have a production system. The amount of time and effort and cost that goes into that and what Tolok and I have been doing, you know, the majority of this work in the last couple of years during the pandemic has been done by Tolok and his wife and his kids and all of my cousins and, and not my cousins, my nieces and nephews and just like a huge family effort to get this done. And we haven't seen a, a return on that at all. 
You know, that's just pure effort and money that has been pumped into that in order to be able to try and establish a regional grain um, economy in Ireland with varieties that's healthy and nutritious and flavorsome. Um, so behind, you know, kind of effort that goes into that, it has to be somehow recognized and appreciated, but that's where the cost comes into it because you have to, at some point, start or people have to start understanding what it takes to get that one kilo of grain or to get that, you know, beautiful loaf um, and what has gone into it over the years, you know. It's very easy just to dismiss it. And even at us, you know, when you think back of where we started, you, you very quickly forget how much effort went into it um, over those years. Um, when you get to the point of being able to actually mill and bake with it, you're just like, oh, yes, now we're here. But um, you just kind of look back and go, bloody hell. What a what an effort, you know, what a what a road that we've traveled in order to be able to get to that point. But um I suppose that's what it takes. And um that's what it takes if you're a pioneer. Yeah. So one one area that obviously is very important is that is the milling process. Uh I think it's not something that most people really have any understanding of at all. So what is it what happens in the milling process? And how does how do different types of milling contribute to, say, the quality of the flour and the nutritional product of the flour? And what sort of research did you do and have you done to design the mill that you currently have and that you're currently operating? Hmm. So I came I came to milling from from scratch zero. You know, I had no experience of, of milling whatsoever. Um, and my first experience of, of any sort of milling was on, a, on um, an Austrian stone mill with an integrated sifter. Um, and just, I, I kind of come from an engineering background, so I, under, I love machines. You know, anything that has moving parts in it, it, it doesn't matter. I pick up on it straight away. So I figured out... Um, how to adjust the stone mill, how to get, you know, the best possible grind out of the stone um, to be able to make the finest flour that I could make on it. This was on the farm when I first started working in Denmark. And then, you know, this tweaked my interest into what was possible with milling. And then over a period of a couple of years, leading up to that, actually, in order to get your grain to a quality for milling, you have to have an extremely good cleaning line, including machine for taking the stones out of the grain, um, for brushing, for taking any of the spores off the grain, for removing all the weed seeds, thistle heads, whatever it may be. So I learned my craft in terms of production of grains from that side, and that automatically transferred into the milling side of it because it's, it's very similar. But um, having spoken to um, and having been involved with the, the startup of a mill here in Denmark, um, I could see the benefits of roller milling and stone milling. And I could see the positives and the negatives from both sides of those, which you have a lot of people throughout the world who are very 
either one way or another, religious when it comes to, oh, grain should only ever touch stones or grain shouldn't be stone milled or whatever it may be. But the advantages of using both was something that was really crystal clear to me from, from day one, because it, it's just common sense. It makes, uh, it makes milling really, it simplifies milling by using a roller mill in front of a stone mill because you're putting the steel to do the hard work as opposed to everything hitting the stone straight away. Now, this comes down to what people believe. You know, some people believe that um, that when the grain hits the rollers, that rollers are that hot, that the grain is toasted and the flour is worthless and the air transportation of the flour removes all the flavor and just whatever. Let people believe what they want. But what I see works is... Uh, this combination process and what I've seen and what I've learned over the years um, has led me to design the mill that I'm currently operating right now. And that took a lot of research and I visited a lot of different uh, places with equipment. I visited different millers. I looked at different stones and I'm somebody who really loves I love quality, you know, I love machines that are built to be robust, something that you can take apart, you can repair, you can put back together. Um, so I kind of began to select equipment that I knew was um, built with style, built with quality, something that has longevity in it and that will fit my need, you know, for milling. Um but when it came to stone mills, I just I hit it. I hit a brick wall. I couldn't I couldn't find a stone mill that was suitable for my production because the majority of the stone mills that I could find, um, if they were using natural stone like granite, um, in a large throughput system, large by which I mean maybe four tons to ten tons a day. My mill currently has a capacity of about four tons a day of milling wheat. Um, most of these granite stones would have to be redressed after two days of milling. And that's not sustainable, you know, to downtime of a day to resharpen the stones and then assemble the whole thing. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to design, build um, and commission flour milling systems, I can't use an inferior product because my name is attached to that, you know, and I don't want to install something for somebody else or for myself where I know that there's going to be a huge amount of effort and time required in the maintenance upkeep of the mill. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so I just went down the rabbit hole of trying to find stones that would actually live up to a production system where you're running, let's say, four tons a day and that you don't only have to take them apart every year to redress them. So I got to the point where I was like, OK, I have to design my own stone mill. And that's what I did. Um, and those are the uh, that's the stone mill that I'm using right now. Um, it's composite set of stones with uh, quartz, emery and flint in it. Um, and it uses a sickle dress. Um, that's the pattern of the stone. Um, and the throughput is the throughput before you have to 
dismantle the stone mill and redress it is around a thousand metric tons. So that's a big difference, you know, when you're talking about milling four tons a day, you know, it's, you fire it up and off she goes. And um, so I've got this, I've got this combination flour mill where I've got uh, a roller mill um, in series before the, the stone mill. And I sift in between each, what we call a break. So each time that the, the grain of flour is broken down again, um, it's sifted, it sifted out. So we take the flour out and then we grind the next stage again. So I've got two breaks on the marola mill and then I've got a stone mill to mill the equivalent of what you call semolina. Um, so it's doing all the, uh, the fine work of the flour. So any fine flour that comes off the first side of the roller mill or the second side of the roller mill is, is sent into the finished silo. And then um, the stone mill grinds in basically the, um, the germ and bran, depending on what type of flour we're making. So if we want to make like a T60, T70, then we'll take the majority of the bran away. So we're left with some fine flakes that's, you know, contributing to the ash content in the flour. Um, if we want to make a darker flour, like a T85 or T110, then we add the bran to the stone mill and grind it in there. So you're getting the oils from the bran ground into the germ and then sifted out again. So it depends on what we're doing, how we're, um, how we're sifting it out and what the, what the baker wants. You know, some bakers, like I've got a good friend that I was texting with last night and one of my fine flowers that I, I'm still not 100% happy with, uh, I'd like it a little bit finer. And she was saying, no, I think it's amazing. I love the color. I love the flavor. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have to keep that, you know, put that in the pigeonhole. That's going to be one of my varieties, but I still have to make the other finer flower that I want to make. Um, obviously, I don't, because... We all know that, you know, whole grain is much healthier for you than sifted fine white flour that can be produced on commercial industrialized roller mills. Um, so I don't, you know, and I, I have no intentions of getting down to super white fine flour because that's, it doesn't make sense for me. And it doesn't make sense of having so low of an extraction where I'm sending, you know, most of that good nutrition back out into the, either spread out on my fields again or sent to compost for mushrooms. Um, so it, I'd, I'd rather retain that in the flower and, you know, get people to, you know, thrive from the benefits of the nutrients and flavor in that. Um, but it does come down from demand, but it can also be dictated a little bit by the miller on what, what you, uh, what you choose to make if you want, you know, and, with the, with the darling of grains that I was talking about, for example, it makes sense to keep as much ash or to keep as high a bran content into the flour as possible because that's where your flavor is. Um, so it comes down a lot to what grain it is, um, how it tastes, how it mills. Um, and that kind of dictates what I will figure out on what type of flour that I want to make, you know. Um, it's been a long journey and I've learned a huge amount on the way in terms of milling um, and thermodynamics and you know everything else in between. Um, 
but I'm really happy with my stone mill now because it does it does what it says on the tin and the the roller mill that I've got actually. So this is, comes back to I studied um, design and technology as a, a degree, a combined degree to be a design technology teacher, and one of the first uh, outings that we had when I was at the university in London was to the Jewelit factory. If you've ever heard of a Jewelit toaster, one of those kind of aluminium, really robust toaster that you see sitting on people's worktops in the houses. Um, I remember going into that factory and it was a former munitions factory from World War II. Um, and we got shown around and they were just showing, you know, what the design of it was and how it was processed and everything. And those machines on the inside of the um, toaster, there's a label and it's hand signed by the person that actually put the toaster together from start to finish. And the parts from the toasters that were built in 1946 are still interchangeable with the toasters that's built today. You know, so that that is, you know, that's design that was built to be repaired as opposed to disposable design. So my roller mill, for example, at the minute is a German roller mill that was manufactured in 1949 and still humming, you know? So I have the same design. I, I had the same design criteria with my stone mill that in a hundred years time that it's still going to be running um, because it comes back to, you know, my whole thinking, my my holistic thinking around all of this about milling, farming, everything is regenerative. It doesn't make sense. On, and this comes down to machinery as well. You know, we and I would say somewhere around 80 percent of the equipment that I've used in the mill is all recycled or upscaled. You know, very little is brand new. And that's that's my whole philosophy as well. You know, not everybody can do this. You know, it's it's. Um, it's just something that I choose to do because uh, I can. I've got the skills and knowledge and experience and, and to be able to do this, but also the philosophy of reusing where possible um, instead of, you know, quarrying out all those rare metals or all of our circuit boards or whatever else it may be. You know, keep, keep it simple. You know, you could still make really, really nutritious food by keeping things simple but just thinking outside the box. Yeah. It's, it's a theme that is continually emerges when in talking to people is, you know, taking some of the best knowledge and skills from the past, but also putting them toward a use that envisions a, a more sustainable future. So this is, see, you've just hit on it there as well, right? In, um, now you've got me fired up. <laughs> <laughs> In, in in the in the 1870s, with the introduction of the roller mill from Hungary, you know, it was almost in the space of five years that we went from stones to rollers. Before that, you know, when ships were coming across the Atlantic, they, their, their hull was full of stones from the quarries north of Paris, the French stones, the best quality stones in the world at that time. And seriously, high-end, you know, high quality stones that every miller in the States wanted to get their hands on. And in the space of five years, those were replaced with roller mills being transported across the Atlantic. So a lot of the um, small, medium-sized mills started to introduce the roller mills, but had exactly the same setup that I have now, a combination between roller mill and stone mill, until 
the demand for white flour was so great that they didn't need the stone mills anymore because people believed that that flour was too dark. And it obviously didn't have the shelf life to be able to transport it for longer distances and store it for a year. So they moved to white flour. But that was the point where, you know, technology of stone milling was at its pinnacle in the 1880s. And then the technology of roller milling came in and that was at its infancy. But it was the point where they had the possibility of making really amazing flour and they threw it out the window and just went with steel. You know, but this, that's, it's just looking at the past. You know, that's 100 and, we're looking 140 years ago of missed opportunity where we just went down the road of going, okay, white flour is what we need because that's what the rich is, you know, taking. So then we had all the factories in the north of England where the poor folks were using white flour with no nutrition in it. Um, but the, the, the possibility was there, but the, the window of opportunity was missed. And it was only a handful of small mills that kept the stones or kept the combination of the roller and stones. Yet this is the, uh, this is the ultimate kitty. This is the solution. Well, we're glad For things me. are... There's uh, a lot of people... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's glad, we're glad to hear and see how things are shifting in that direction again. And, and uh, I think your work is a big part of that. So it's great. Well, you did warn us that we would go on for a while and that we might have to split up this into a two-parter. So I feel like <laughs> this might be a good place to pause it for now. And um, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. And um, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, it was and, great. Uh, I, loved, I loved the work you guys are doing as well. It's um, really interesting. And uh I love to see where it's going to go in the future as well. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.